This morning we start uh, the second of three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. It might be one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. In fact, the very first sermon that I ever preached was in the school of ministry, and our assignment was to pick a passage of Scripture from the Bible anywhere that has touched our heart and share from it. And the Lord brought me to Matthew chapter 6 specifically for this amazing promise of Jesus that when you are his disciple and you follow him and you trust him and you put all of your faith into his hands, there is nothing to worry about. There's no reason to have anxiety. There's no reason to fear the future. There's no reason to to live in worry because Jesus in this chapter is going to remind his followers that the Father takes care of his creation, and the Father takes care of his people even more so. But before we get to that part of the chapter, we actually start with a, a, a really a new theme to overlay on the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Remember the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his disciples, and then he gives them all of these ways that their life will be blessed. We called it the Beatitudes. You'll be blessed if you're poor in spirit. You'll be blessed if you mourn over your sin. You'll be blessed if you're merciful. You'll be blessed if you're a peacemaker and if you're meek and if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in all of these ways that Jesus is telling his people with me, your life is going to be cared for and it's going to be joyful and it's going to be content in my kingdom. Wherever there is a blessing, there is always a beware. Any time in your life or in the, in the history of God's people, whenever God brings his people into a place of his protection and provision and blessing, that always comes with a cautionary warning because we so easily turn blessings into burdens. Do we not? And so now Matthew chapter 6, in verse 1, he's going to say, instead of blessing, he's going to say, be warned or take heed. And before we get into the warning of the mount... I want to talk about the importance of this warning. And it's important because just by way of you being at church this morning, you are actually defying the odds of the culture. Because if you pay attention to the numbers as the church age grows in the country that we live in, over the past 10 to 20 years, the church has not kept up with the population. The growth of our country does not correlate to the growth of the church, which means that the church in America is slowly losing ground. And I think some of you can probably sense that who have been around the church for long enough. And some of you will probably have a reminder of why that is as I share with you what that means for the warning of this morning. Because if you are aware of the numbers or you're trying to keep your pulse or your finger on the pulse of what's happening to the church, One of the number one reasons that people will tell you who have left the church, or maybe some of you who are here, maybe on your last Sunday. It's like, I'll go one more time, but I've had it up to here with church. And this is my last Sunday. I'll give that one more sermon. I'll give those people one more try. And maybe you are yourself close to becoming one of these statistics. What is the exit poll reason that people give for leaving the church? And you can find a collection of answers that you can kind of put together and try to figure out. But the one that seems to be a reoccurring theme is really found in one word. And it is the word that Jesus is going to offer as the warning against the blessing of the Sermon on the Mount. And that word is hypocrisy. Look what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. 
Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do your charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is going to bring a balance and a warning to all of the blessings that come through following him by giving three examples that paint a picture of hypocrisy. He's actually going to use the word, as the hypocrites do, in three separate examples that have to do with some really good spiritual disciplines, some really good ways to experience the blessings of Christ, but the warning against doing righteous things for the wrong reasons. That's what Jesus is going to get at. And that is something that all of us need to hear because some of you are on the brink of hypocrisy being the reason you leave church. Some of you are healing from moments of hypocrisy affecting your uh, relationship with God or your pursuit of God through church. And most of us are probably in some ways listening to this, thinking about our own life and how sometimes we pursue God in front of people, and we put people on a higher pedestal than we do God. It just seems to be part of our human nature. So today we're going to look at three things. One, what hypocrisy isn't? Because what we don't want to do is use the word so broadly that we apply this in a way that anything we could possibly do in pursuit of God has to be filtered through the warning of hypocrisy, and we all leave here saying, I don't even know why I go to church, I'm such a hypocrite. What it isn't matters. And it'll tell, help us understand the second aspect of this, which what is Jesus getting at when he uses the word hypocrisy in these three religious ways? And then finally, we're going to look at why it matters, which is an important aspect of this because as we think through our own lives, as we sometimes pursue God and we sometimes look for the praise of man, we, we might treat this warning as a spiritual slap on the wrist, as though this is something that maybe all of us struggle with, but it, you wouldn't put it in the category of murder or adultery. And yet, the reason this matters has something to do with the health of your soul and your life as much as anything else. So let's begin by saying what it isn't. Before we get into the examples that Jesus will share, we kind of have to do some review on what Matthew 5 told us about the blessings of God. Because the very first blessing in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we spent an entire Sunday talking about the reality that all of us before the holiness and the perfection and the goodness of God have reasons to be poor before him. To say, God... I am not perfect, you are. I am not righteous in myself, you are. And I am not good enough to consider my own righteousness enough to save me. That's poverty in spirit. And we remind ourselves of that this morning, lest we think hypocrisy or the call and warning against it is to say, unless you're living perfectly before God from the time church ends to the time church begins, save your pursuit, you hypocrite. Because the reality is, is there are all sorts of things that God is working out in us. He's maturing us in, and he's giving us as uh, uh, obedient commands for us to follow that we don't live out perfectly. As an example, last week, the whole sermon was about one simple concept, that when we love people the way God loves us, we are required to love enemies. Because God loves us, 
before we, we call him our Lord and Savior and friend. While we were still sinners, he died for us, his en- enemies. And so go forth, church, and love your enemies. And some of you, with all good intentions to follow God, struggled with that command, no doubt. No doubt there were moments when people did things to let you down or annoy you or cut you off in traffic where you were less than perfectly agape loving your enemies. But that does not mean that you now, in your pursuits this morning, to be refreshed and revived by the word of God and the presence of God to worship him and to trust him with your life, you are a hypocrite because you failed. So we're not looking for something that would disqualify any pursuit in the struggle to follow God, because it is a struggle. We live in a fallen world with a fallen flesh, and we are being sanctified or cleansed from glory to glory to glory. So as many of you set out to pray and failed this week or prayed less than you desired to or in ways that were less than genuine, as many of you desired to, 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 to allow God to revive your heart as a husband or wife or parent or friend and had your moments of flesh, Walk in grace this morning that this does not mean you're so hypocritical you, could not, you should not be here. You're poor in spirit, and the struggle should be real for all of us. The challenge, as we'll get to with hypocrisy, is not to never have a struggle, but to try to paint the struggle with an exterior veneer that denies it exists at all. So number one is hypocrisy does not mean you don't struggle with the challenge of following Christ. This is something that we will grow in and mature in for the rest of our lives. The second aspect of what it isn't can also be found in another beatitude when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In other words, Jesus is working into the constitution of his kingdom the way that we should treat one another. And because God is merciful to us, we are blessed when we show each other mercy and compassion and preference to all of the ways that our lives do not completely align with our preferences and our little idiosyncrasies to where we think we should land in following Jesus. Give you an example. Some of you in your pursuit of Christ have totally forbidden any kind of consumption of alcohol. No doubt some of you said, you know, that was a sin that was so real for me that I am just pouring alcohol down the drain and I don't want to drink it again. Others of you have found in your Christian liberty a balance where it does not cause you to stumble in your worship and pursuit of God. So now we have two people living according to the will of God for their specific lives lives that may find themselves with colliding preferences. So what do we do? Well, Romans chapter 4, 14, Paul gives advice in this manner. He says, when things come up, just give preference. So some of you celebrate holidays, some of you don't. Some of you eat meat offered to idols, some of you don't. Some of you drink, some of you don't. And there is a way to come together, and for those of us who can love one another by laying down our preferences and Christian liberties and sustain at times when we're around other people, and some of you who sustain and you're at a wedding and someone gives you a drink and culturally you say, okay, I will, for this instance, sustain for my sustaining. There's no hypocrisy in that. That's loving one another. That is living what you have to live in following Jesus, a nuanced life. Because he is not coming to make all of us rigid robots. He's coming to teach us how to live in his grace and learn by his spirit how to love one another in all sorts of preferential ways. So that's what hypocrisy isn't, lest we leave here burdened by the legality law of avoiding hypocrisy so that we become more hypocritical in trying to fulfill it. So what is it? And now we'll look at the examples that Jesus shares for us. First, 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street. Key phrase, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. He now teaches them the proper way, but when you do a charitable deed, don't, know, don't let your left know what your right hand is doing. In other words, in, in, a, in a hyperbolic way, Jesus is saying, be so private before God that it is so unto God that you give your gifts, unto God that you care for the poor, unto God that you do your loving good deeds, that you yourself are not even impressed. That as the right hand drops the alms into the basket in the collection of an offering from the poor, the left hand is so unaware that you can't even pat yourself on the back. That's what Jesus is saying. But in the example, in the proper, good Christian discipline of loving through deeds, Jesus says, watch out for this. Don't do it so that you would receive glory. Don't do it so that people would see you doing it and praise you. Now, this brings some clarity to, unless you thought about it, could be almost a contradictory statement that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Because what happens in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? Dr. John Whitaker gave a whole sermon that we are called to be the lights of the world, to shine God's light, his truth, his goodness, his love, charity into the dark. And Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works. So it can't simply be, be so invisible, live like a monk, and live like a Christian ninja that no one ever sees you coming. Because in the blessing chapter, Jesus says, let people see you. Why? So that when they see your good works, they would give glory to the Father in heaven. So this is a matter of who receives the glory. This is a matter of, in two ways, one, the audience that you are giving to, and two, who receives the glory when the love is on the display. Because here's the reality. There is glory in love. You do not have to be a Christian to believe that. There is glory in caring for the weaker, for the least of these, for the orphan, for the widow. There is something that all of us long to be a part of when you move humanity towards good. And what Jesus is saying, do not let that good and glorious moment be something you live for so people attribute to you. And I guess this is a good moment for us to be reminded that you do not avoid this problem by avoiding church. As some of you are like, man, this is a hypocritical place and religion is hypocritical. I got to get somewhere where there's no hypocrites. This is a human nature condition. That we seek approval and we long to do good and we long for that approval and that good to somehow justify who we are. Now let me share a baseline example of this found in the one of the best ways you can do a human case study, and that's by f studying the life of George Costanza from Seinfeld. <laughs> because George Costanza is maybe the best picture of the human flesh. George is a short, chubby, bald man who wants everyone to love him. And that is your flesh. <laughs> and in this particular episode, he's frustrated with his friend Jerry, best friend Jerry, 
that he went to give a tip in the tip jar, and right when he was dropping it in, the shop owner looked away. And how annoying is that? How often are we giving our alms to the poor among us who are baristas and shop owners, and right when we're putting the tip in, it's like, make sure that they can see plus 18% on the iPad, make sure that they can see a $5 bill going into the tip. So it's, it's, yes, it's about blessing them, but it's also about them seeing how kind and generous all of you are. And George says to Jerry, right when I was putting it in, he looked away. It's like I threw away a dollar. And Jerry says, so you must not make it a habit to give to the blind because they never see. To which George says, I don't give them bills, implying if you drop change, you still get credit. And there's something that all of us can relate to, whether it is before the church crowd, before the friend group, before the online mob before you that is waiting to see who you are and what you're all about so they can give you their vote of approval through a heart, a thumbs up, a comment, a share, a pat on the back, a nice job. To take the point one step further, here's an article from Psychology Today, giving a little bit of commentary on just the social world that we live in. And it's interesting what they say lies at the heart of the problems that all of us sense and feel about our social condition in 21st century America, where there seems to be division everywhere, competition everywhere, and this need for approval seems to be something we're all addicted to. Here's what psychology today says. Public morale and discourse is toxic. One reason it's so bad is that people use their discussions of morality and politics for self-promotion rather than to actually help others. You may have heard people accuse those they suspect of abusing moral talk in this way of engaging in moral grandstanding or virtue signaling. Look at all of my incredible love and care for the least of these, because I care about this hashtag in this city, in this cause. Reading this was attached a uh, political cartoon, and I'll try to describe to you what it, what it said. It had an apartment building full of people on their smartphones. Outside of the apartment building is a night scene with a spotlight on a woman being attacked by a, 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 a man who's robbing her, and she says, please help, please help do something. And everyone on their smartphones is, rather than helping her and acknowledging her or doing anything actionable, they're all tweeting and Instagramming and Facebooking the hashtag, do something. Do something to help one, help someone. And this is the world we live in, where so many people are concerned to, about being approved, that we're more concerned about posturing the acts of love and politics and morality than actually caring about the cause that we're a part of. This is the version of hypocrisy that Jesus is saying we must be warned against. That we must not care more about approval than the actual cause that we are supposed to be representing or taking part in in our pursuit of God. And so he says, charitable deeds, don't do it for the glory of men. He'll go on to use another very important Christian discipline that all of us should be pursuing and working out with the Lord on how to grow in the gift of prayer. And he says the same thing. 
when you pray, verse 5, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. So these religious people in the days of Jesus have turned prayer into something they do so publicly, and he'll go on to say, with such eloquence and many words, that the whole point of their prayer is not necessarily to move the heart of God, but to be seen by people. And this is hypocrisy, taking a good and righteous pursuit and living it out for the wrong reasons. Finally, uh, after he goes through how we ought to pray, which we'll study all next week, the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, pray in this manner. He gives one more example in verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. They have a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to reward. So the final example, again, Christian discipline, a gift of God that he has given us, the, the call to fast. It, it's assumed by Jesus. He doesn't say if, but when. It's something that you do in your life to take the, the, the blessed is the poor in spirit for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be comforted and, and they'll be filled. You take that desire for righteousness and you apply it in real time to your life over the course of a day or an afternoon or a few days where you say, I'm so hungry for God, I forego food and the physical pain I feel will actually be turned into a hunger for the presence of God. That is a really good thing to fast. And yet Jesus says, because in fasting you have a reason to show yourself weak with a countenance that is sad, you have a temptation to not fast to know God, but a fast so that people would see how spiritual you are. So if you're fasting, you come in from a long day of living like a monk in the foothills of Boise, Idaho, and it was hot, and you did not eat, and you have a little bit of, of dust that maybe fell on your face, maybe you just put it on your face because you're so <laughs> spiritual, and you come home and your pagan roommate or family member is preparing a meal and it smells really good. So you have to just interrupt and tell them, I have not eaten all day. I'm pursuing God right now. It's really hard. And I'm actually sad about it. But if you don't mind taking that food somewhere out of sight so that I can continue down this road of holiness. And now we're going to get to the dangers of this because Jesus says in that moment when you do that in your pursuit of God, there's your reward. He said, assuredly, you do that and there is your reward. So as we talk about what it is, the, the main idea is you take a righteous pursuit of God and somehow elevated above God is approval of men. In the spiritual sense, that is something that Jesus says, that, that's what hypocrites do, and don't do that in your life. And then he says why. Every time, every one of the examples that we, we read, from doing your charitable deeds to praying and fasting, the warning always said this, they'll have the reward. But if you do it right, your Father will give you a different reward. And this is why, although it seems like a subtlety in our soul, it is so important that we get this right. Because if you do not have the reward that God wants to give you, 
in your pursuit of him, in your attendance of church, in your singing of the songs, in your prayer, in your thanksgiving, in your fasting, in your charity, in your love, in your, in your consistency in marriage to stay faithful. There is a lesser reward and there is the real reward. And what we are being cautioned against is the reward that is so vain and so empty and so shallow that it causes all of us to look around and say, is this it? These hypocrites are living for this? Or in my own hypocrisy, is this the most that, that, that we get out of the pursuit of God? So we look at each reward. First he says, therefore when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you like all the hypocrites in the synagogues and the streets. It's all encompassing. It's in church, it's in the streets. And he uses this word hypocrite. And if you've heard a sermon preached on hypocrisy, then surely you've heard the pastor unpack what he was getting at with this example. Because this is a word that we really only use as Jesus intended it to be understood rather than the context of its day. We understand it as someone who says one thing and does another. But Jesus was really getting at a, a living parable example of what happened in Greek theater. In fact, when he says, you do what you do to be seen by men, to be seen by men is the same Greek word for theater. That's what you do when you get on a stage and you put on your outfit and you put on your mask, which is the name for a hypocrite who is play acting. And this is what Jesus is saying will happen in the world of religion. I think of my own example right now. The challenge of preparing for this message is that I knew full well before God in my preparation that I was about to stand on a stage to an introduction of the lead pastor of a church and people may or may not applause, but they'd nod their heads and afterwards they'd say, great job. And what I am walking into is the dangerous balance of a tightrope in the pursuit of God to fulfill the call to preach his word, but also in front of all of your faces staring right at me. I'm walking into the potential for religious theater. And so I prayed this week, I ask you to pray with me, that pastors, preachers, ministers, missionaries, they all have this temptation to live in religious theater. And if I only live for the theater, if I am here and my existence for why I do what I do is the reward of your smiling faces and the pat on the back and the handshake of good sermon. All encouragement that I gladly receive, but it's the lesser reward. The reward of the theater is applause. And applause does not last very long. I want you to think of it in your terms now. You're not a pastor, you're not preaching right now, but thought experiment. Let's think through what Jesus is saying in his day. Like, don't be like an actor in theater. So now consider yourself, you just got the role. The, the classic high school play, Oklahoma. Every high school drama student probably tried out for Oklahoma. There were two main characters that you could get. It was this Americana play about the, just the West and westward expansion and love between the, the, the dame and the cowboy and just happy ever after play. And girls, you could either be Lori or guys, you could be Curly. And in the end, Lori and Curly just like each other and then they see each other at the square dance and then they fall in love and, and they get married. And at the end of the play, all the townspeople are just dancing and so excited for them to, to expand west on their covered wagon and start a family and settle in. What a beautiful play. And at the end of the play, 
Lori and Curly, you guys are all one of them. You stand up on stage and everyone's like, that was awesome. You sang awesome and you danced awesome and the fake kiss looked real. And now, applause. And you would stand up and everyone would clap. And you, as the lead of the play, would receive all of that applause and you would bow. And maybe if it was really good, you'd get some roses that were thrown at your feet. And then you'd leave stage and you'd go home and it would all be over. Your reward was the applause and the rose. Now, here's the important distinction. Your reward is not that you actually fell in love. Lori's, you're still single at the end of the day. Curly's, you didn't find your dame. You don't have a covered wagon, and you don't get to start a family out west. That was all play acting. The real reward of true love and happy ever after ends when the play ends. All you get is the applause, and it is the same in the kingdom. Applause is the reward for those who are living before the religious theater. And when the applause ends, so does the satisfaction. And, and, and we belabor this because in all of human history, we've never had such back row access, backstage access to the life of celebrity. If you live for applause, you will be constantly looking for the next stage to stand on. If you are living for the reviews you will be severely disappointed because human praise is so fickle. The earthly reward is so fragile. In fact, Jesus will draw this out. After he gets done, every one of these teachings, there's a lesser reward and there's the God reward. He says in verse 19, at the very end of the final example, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. If you are rewarded by your peers and you get a trophy and a reward from someone on this side of eternity and you get applause, it is all temporary. And the back row seat of the celebrity life is now more than ever, we get to see that at the top of the mountain of fame and popularity is emptiness because you need the next stage and the crowd is changing its mind all the time. And this is something now we look for the example of Jesus in because he never bought into the applause of men. And thank God he didn't. Because if we remember anything from Holy Week that we celebrate as a run into every Easter, we celebrate Palm Sunday where it's like, how good is our God? Hosanna comes to save. Palm tree leaves at his feet because everyone loves him. And Palm Sunday always turns into Good Friday where the mob has rejected him and those same people that were laying their robes on the feet were now shaking their fists in the air, yell, crucify him. And the same will be true of your earthly reward. You live for spiritual theater. You live as a pastor to hear that your congregation loves you. You live as a missionary to give amazing news reports regardless of the reality of what's happening on the ground. You live as a husband or wife that everyone thinks is doing well, but in the end your marriage is falling apart. You live as a parent who everyone thinks you are the disciplinarian genius, but your kids don't like you. Your reward is the applause, and it's going away quickly. Jesus says there's a greater reward. I have the greater reward. We look at the second reward tension. It says, don't be like the hypocrites. They pray so that everybody would see them. They go out in the streets and they're praying out loud. And then they, they, they pray with vain repetition, thinking that by many words, God would be moved. Because they're treating God as we treat each other. That if you're really going to love me, if you're really going to believe me, I got to convince you. Jesus says, 
The Father already knows your needs. Before you ask, you don't have to convince him. You just have to believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So what is the reward of the hypocrite who wants to be known as someone who prays? Where it's very similar. You go to the prayer circle, and you wait for the perfect time, and you let out your amazing prayer that you have been working on all morning, and there's your reward. Your reward is that people look to you as the ultimate prayer warrior. And yet Jesus says you miss the greater reward, which is what? He says, when you pray, close the door. Go into the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That says a couple of things. One, Jesus is saying, much like the left and the right giving, when you pray, never mind people's ears. Never mind what people can hear about your prayers so that they would give you respect. Because in the end, people cannot answer your prayers. Only God can. So find your secret place. And that, in in a sense, is a literal thing. Like, I encourage all of you to have a place that you pursue God in that is between you and him. But it's not about the secret place. The only thing that makes your prayer closet or your, your, your prayer paradise by the river or your backyard pursuit of God holy at all is because God has chose to meet you there. That's what makes it holy. And that can change. God can draw you to new places. What Jesus is saying about the secret place ultimately is your heart. What is the private matter of your heart say about your trust that God rewards prayer? What does the private thoughts of your mind say about what you truly believe about God? What does the secret part of your inner being say about the trust that you have in God to be the provider of your life? I think of another example. There's an older family in our church, man and wife, who are going through those last stages of, of marriage as they made their commitment to love one another until death do them part. And the wife is going through some real health scares. Just be praying for this husband and wife in our church because she's at the hospital right now. He came to first service. They're separated right now. Going to keep visiting her, and we're getting reports that things are turning. She's getting better. But I called him last night, and he gave me a report, and he said, hey, awesome report also is that the nurse came in, and I could tell that she was just open to, to the Lord, and I asked her, how can I be praying for you? A nurse who has come to minister to a man who is at death's door with his own wife, and this man, with his pursuit of God and love of God, apart from any of the religious theater, says, can I pray for you? And she opens her heart and says, I need what you need. You're praying for a loved one to get better. I'm praying for a loved one to get better. Would you pray with me? And he walked right into the reward of prayer. The reward of prayer is not that you look spiritual. The reward of prayer is found in James chapter 5, verse 6, when it says that God gives grace to the humble and that the, prayer of, the fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. When you pray in fervency, and your righteousness has nothing to do with what people think about you, but the righteousness is that your heart is genuine. James says, your prayers work. And that's the update. The nurse gave him an update that said, you prayed for my family member, and they got better. And he's like, I love God. Let your light shine before men and women and nurses and neighbors that they would see your good works and glorify the Father. He had a desire to pray genuinely trusting that God rewards those who diligently seek him, and he lived for the greater reward. 
Prayer has a greater reward. Prayer is the gift that God has given all of us to move his heart towards the perfect will that he has, that none would perish, but all would find life in his name. And then we come to this final example with the reward tension built in. It says, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrite who walks in with all the sadness and all the hurt and all the pain. He says, clean up. Don't let anybody know what's going on. Because the reward will either be, wow, your Christian brother or friend or neighbor really has sympathy on how hard your spiritual journey has been. Enjoy your reward of sympathy of someone seeing you fast. Or, and this is where the whole crux of the sermon points us to, or the reward is this. You can know God. You can experientially have a relationship with God that when you turn off the devices, when you turn off the routine, when you carve out a day or an hour or a moment to pursue God and your hunger for the physical turns into hunger for the spiritual, here's the reward. God says, here I am. You can know him. Next to each one of these rewards, you could put one simple promise of the psalm. And this psalm should remind you why we should fight so hard in our spirit to overcome the flesh desire to be approved by men and not by God. Psalm 16 gives us this promise. David, who had his struggles but never gave up, says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. The warning against hypocrisy is a warning against missing out about the whole point. The whole reason we're here is to cash in on the reality that in the presence of God, when you pursue him apart from religious theater, when you desire to know him, through love, through the design that he made you to walk in his goodness, through prayer, through seeking him in intimacy, and through fasting to put all other needs behind the need to know God. The promise of Psalm 16 is there's joy. You can know God. You can hear his voice like a sheep hears the shepherd's voice. You can be approved by him. Because the message is not to say, turn off all of those fleshly desires to be accepted into a community and to be approved by someone. All of that is paganism. What we need to do is be so neutral in our giving and our love and our prayer that we overcome the desire to be approved. That is not the message. The message is you were designed by a God who wants to be your father and adopt you into his family to say, well done, my beloved. I approve of you. And if God approves of you, what does it matter what the opinions of men or culture or politics have to do with the joy that is given to you in a relationship with God. As I was processing all this, I thought of a moment in the, one of my favorite books, which is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Love this book. So I, I, I just started reading through it, looking for the, the scene I was remembering, and I didn't find it, but I kept reading, and it brought me to this particular section that I want to share with you now because it gives so much assurance and freedom to the call to pursue God for God. 
So if you've never read the book, it's really interesting. It is a work of fiction. So it's just C.S. Lewis imagining what it would be like to visit hell and to take some people who have residency there and allow them to visit heaven to see if they want to change addresses, if you were. And as some of them that get up there, they, they have questions that create in them some hesitation towards heaven and eternity and the presence of God, like all of us do in these moments. And there's a spirit that kind of acts as a guide, and he's walking with a ghost who's making these decisions about heaven. And he says, the ghost says, when do I get to start to paint? You know, it's like, take your favorite hobby and, and admit that at some times, rather than the, the idea of being in the, the fullness of the presence of God, face to face with him, and heaven being the reality of worshiping God, sometimes heaven is diminished to your favorite hobby, unlimited. It's like, when do I get to golf up here? Uh, when do I get to play guitar? When do I get to, you know, get back to collecting stamps like I was doing on earth? And for this man, it was painting. And the spirit broke into laughter. He said, don't you see, you never paint if that's what you're thinking about. The ghost says, what do you mean? He says, if you're interested in the country only for the sake of painting it, you'll never learn to actually see it. That hit me like a ton of bricks as someone who drove from Boise to New York and back. And every time I got to the National Monument or the piece of creation, I'm like, get the camera, get the video lens, get everything out, put the kids here, because this I am here for the picture. And this moment rightly predicted the state of our modern world because C.S. Lewis says, if all you care about is painting, you're going to miss the entire countryside. You're going to try to frame something you know nothing about. And then he gets back to the gist of what's really going on. The ghost says, isn't that how real artists find any interest in anything? Is by wanting to paint it? He says, no, you're forgetting. It's not how you began. Light itself was your first love. You loved painting only as a means to capture the beauty of light. The ghost says, oh, that was ages ago. And everybody grows out of that. Of course, you haven't seen my latest work. One becomes more and more interested in paint for its own sake. One does indeed, said the spirit. I had to recover of that. It was a snare. Listen to this. Ink and brushes and paint were necessary on earth, but they were dangerous stimulants. Every poet, every musician, and every artist, but for the grace of God, is drawn away from love of the thing he tells about to love only of the telling of it. Ton of bricks now. You fall in love with God. You fall in love with knowing him and pursuing him. And somehow, apart from the grace of God, we get drawn into all of the mechanisms by which we know him rather than him himself. So after a little while, it's like all I want to do is know God and your prayers are simple but true. And now it's like, well, how can I pray better? What is the mechanism by which my 10-minute devotional gets the most prayer out of my time? And I started with New King James, but ESV, like let's get the best translation. And I started at Calvary, but they're crazy, so how do we get a better church experience? And in all of our questions that are rooted in some good desire of maturity, the pursuit of God, like the pursuit of nice paints and nice paintbrushes and nice canvases, somehow takes priority over God himself. And you, come, you become more interested in church than Christ. You become more interested in in the way the music is mixed than what the music is drawing you to. You come more interested in how well the teacher explains than what he's actually explaining. Somehow in our pursuit of God, God becomes diminished 
as the pursuit increases. And now we find ourselves on stage at the religious theater, showing off all of our religious toys that we've acquired, all of our religious assets. This is the cure. The cure is to restore the reward, to reject the lesser reward, and to remember your first love. This is how the book will go on. He said, I needed to be cured myself. And when I got here, I drank of the fountain. And the fountain made all of God's glory flow through all of us equally. The ghost says, what's the fountain? And he describes it as this place upon entry into eternity where you are washed once and for all, cleansed by cold, pure water. I couldn't help but seeing the woman at the well at the scene where Jesus comes to a fountain and says, I have something that if you drink of this drink, you will never thirst again. The need for approval, the need for likes, the need for comments, the needs for shares, it will all be satisfied in the fountain of my love. The ghost says, what's the fountain? He says, when you've drunk of the fountain, you forget about forever all the ideas of self-ownership in your own works. You enjoy your good works just as though they were someone else's, without pride and without modesty. He then asks an important question. Maybe you've asked this question. Do you mean there are no famous people in eternity? I mean, haven't you wondered about eternity? And you're like, I got, I'm going to wait in line first thing. I'm going to go see the John the Baptist exhibit. Definitely want to check out Paul. And then I'm going to make my way over to the, all the rest of the disciples and probably see C.S. Lewis. And it's like, what are we actually pursuing in the pursuit of famous people? This is the answer. They're all famous. They are all known. Everyone in eternity is remembered and recognized fully by the only one who can give a perfect judgment of the soul. For God approving of the righteous in Christ is one of the great joys of heaven. The reward is that the one who will actually remember when your name fades through the history books, the one who can actually justify by giving you the free gift of salvation and approving you into the community, the one who actually knows your name in the depths of your heart and says, I love you because I love you because I love you and I always will. The one who says, if I am for you, who can be against you? The reward of being accepted once and for all and for always. That is what we're living for. And religious theater diminishes all of the reward. How many pastors are living for the lesser reward that they would be known? How many husbands just want to be seen as good guys? How many wives just want to go to the Bible studies and come back to the, the marriage that no one will ever know about? And yet there is a God this morning that says, if that's what you want, that's your reward. But I have something so much greater. Pursue me and only me in the secret. And as he said to Abraham in Ge Genesis chapter 15, and I will be your exceedingly great reward. And this really is a message that I hope will land on the hearts of some of you who came to church expecting a message on hypocrisy, not because of the sermon, but because of the people. And here you are, a message from the God who made you to say, I will never, ever violate who I am. 
God is not a hypocrite. He loves you because he loves you. He accepts you. He takes your sin and separates it as far as the east is from the west. He says you're forgiven and he doesn't change his mind. He says you're saved and he means it. He says that you are adopted into his family and you can now call him father. If you do not know the approval of God this morning, you will always be looking until you drink of the fountain of his love where you will be satisfied forevermore. And if you do know God, if you love him, if you fell in love with him, with the joy of just knowing him, let that be enough. Be, re be revived and renewed in the love that you have for God, that he is your reward. 